0: Today is the third Sunday in Lent here at Trinity, and we've been preaching a sermon series on the book of Lamentations, and today we're in chapter three of Lamentations. Chapter three has 66 verses in it, so I've decided not to read all 66 verses. I'm gonna shrink it down a little bit. Verses one through three, and then 19 through 36. Listen to God's word. I am the one who has seen affliction, Under the rod of God's wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand, again and again, all day long. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it. To put one's mouth to the dust, there may yet be hope. To give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. When all the prisoners of the land are crushed underfoot, When human rights are perverted, in the presence of the Most High, when one's case is subverted, does the Lord not see it? This is the gift of God's word. Let's pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight oh lord our rock and our redeemer in jesus name we pray amen back in the fall of 2012 after i finished graduate school at princeton theological seminary my wife and i moved to seattle washington katie was going to be starting up graduate school at the university of washington to do occupational therapy She had supported me when I was in graduate school, so I was going to support her while she was in graduate school now. And as I was there, I was looking for lots of jobs, and it was kind of hard to find jobs back in 2012. I don't know if you remember that time, but that was still when the economy was down, it was hard to find a good job. And it took a few months, but six months went by, and this church kind of close to the airport, they had a job opening that opened up for associate pastor for youth ministry, So I got in touch with them and gave them my resume, and it all looked pretty good. Um, It looked pretty exciting, like a good opportunity to finally do that, which I had been trained to do, to be a pastor. The reason why they're hiring somebody, though, to be associate pastor for youth ministry at that church, they'd never had an associate pastor before. They'd only had a youth director for youth ministry. Um, But the reason why they're hiring an associate pastor is because That person had been let go before I was there, and she was let go because one of the adult leaders in the youth ministry had an inappropriate relationship with one of the teenage girls, and he went to jail for that inappropriate physical relationship that he had with the teenage girl. And the hard part about it, this is what I learned in my interview, the hard part about it was that the former youth director, she was supportive of him in the midst of all of this. She was supportive of him, and not the girl who was the victim. So it was this really hard situation, and I I knew it was going to be hard going into it, but I just thought, if God has called me here, I'm just going to see what happens, and maybe things will work out well, and it will all go fine. It was hard, as you can imagine, to enter into a ministry after that kind of situation happened. It was really, really difficult. and this youth ministry was a kind of what you imagine to be a traditional youth ministry, not like ours here at Trinity, um, where we try to involve teenagers in the whole life of the church. But there it was this really like s- segregated youth ministry. They met every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 p.m. and played games and ate dinner together. And, and in that context, it, it was just difficult because this former youth director kept pulling these kids away to try to have this conflict and this battle. One night, a few months after I started out there, the kids would always text message me before they came to youth group to let me know they were coming to youth group. And one afternoon, they were texting me, and they said, yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And then at about seven o'clock when we were supposed to get stuff started, nobody was there. And I was wondering, I was, where is everybody? It's seven o'clock, they said they were coming. So me and the other adult advisor walked upstairs to go outside to see if there's any cars in the parking lot. And nobody was there, so I texted some of the students. I said, where are you? said you were coming today. And one of the students finally texted me back at about 7.30 and he said, we're out at dinner with the former youth director and the guy, that he just got out of jail a few days before that. And the former youth director wanted to plan to have this get out of jail party during youth group on a Wednesday night. It was heartbreaking to hear that. All of the work that I tried to put in to do some kind of healing of what was happening in that youth ministry was totally sabotaged. And I remember just sitting down on the bench after that, crying, because there was so many implications of that moment, there was so much loss in that moment. There was what felt like the death of this youth ministry. There was a death also just like even in thinking of my own self. What does this mean for my own future? If there's no youth ministry, what does it mean to be associate pastor of youth ministry at this church? Um, I began to ask all these questions, these significant questions in that moment. And Alan, in his wisdom, he was the other adult that was there with me. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Kurt, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. He'd been in the thick with it for me for those last six months as one of those adult leaders at the church, and he knew what we were doing. Perhaps you've been in a similar place in your life, similar, maybe not that specific because that's a pretty unique, specific story, but maybe something similar. You've experienced loss, loss of a loved one, loss of a family member, loss of a job. Maybe you've never had the job that you hoped for, too. Sometimes when we think of loss, there's also people that have never had access to those things or access to loving family relationships. And you find yourself in these deep places of lament and loss. I, at times, uh, quote the scholar C.S. Lewis in my sermons. And maybe some of you don't know this, but C.S. Lewis was married later on in his life, and he married an American woman. And they were only married for about three years before she died. And it was really devastating to C.S. Lewis that his new wife had died, and he wrote this little book called "A Grief Observed" after she died. It's really small, but it was his reflections in the moment of the grief that was coming up for him and losing his wife. And I want to read a couple of these verses, or come not verses, sorry, a couple of these, uh, a couple quotes from this book that he wrote on "A Grief Observed." And he says this: sooner or later. I must face the question in plain language. What reason have we, except our own desperate wishes, to believe that God is, by any standard we can conceive, good? Doesn't all the prima facie evidence suggest exactly the opposite? Have What have we to set against it? We set Christ against it, but how, if he were mistaken? Almost his last words may have a perfectly clear meaning. He had found that the being he called Father was horribly and infinitely different from what he had supposed. The trap, so long and carefully prepared and so subtly baited, was at last sprung on the cross. This vile, practical joke had succeeded. Lewis, in his deep grief, he, he, he has these new questions about who is God and what is God. And he doesn't know where to go with these questions. He doesn't know what to do with his lament. And I think that's partly why we're in this sermon series on lamentations. If C.S. Lewis were sitting here and he came to me, I would say, don't look at the cross just yet if you're in that deep place of lament. You can look at it. um, But maybe there's something else there for you to help you in this deep time of lament for you. And that's where I think lamentations is actually really, really helpful. Lamentations is so helpful when we find our places in these times of loss and lament. I would say, C.S. Lewis, let's read Lamentations together. And I bet you'll see and feel some hope in it, that you'll conceive of God as good, perhaps. There's three things that I think are really helpful that come from Lamentations that I want to try to share with you today. The first one is that there is order in the midst of chaos in Lamentations. Pastor Mary mentioned last week that Lamentations takes the form of uh, like other ancient Near Eastern documents and poetry when they have lost a city. And when they lost a city, they wrote poetry and had these four different pieces of it that made it identify as a poem poem for the loss of a city. And one of those pieces was an acrostic. An acrostic is a poem that follows um, each line with a new letter in the alphabet. So it would be like A would be the first line. The first word of that line would start with that letter in the alphabet. So A, B, C, D. Lamentations 1, 2, and 4 are all acrostics. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and they follow that, those 22 lines. Lamentations chapter 3 is also an acrostic, but it's amplified in that there's 66 verses. So the first three lines are all A. Then the next three lines are B, then the next three lines are C, and so on and so forth. There's an acrostic in Lamentations. There's an acrostic in Lamentations. Why I think this is so significant is because it, it's, you don't really see it when you're reading in English, of course. But if you were seeing it in Hebrew, there would be a sense of structure, a sense of order when you find yourself in lament. You would know that once you finished reading A, that there would be B but ultimately that there would be an end to that, that there would be all the way down to Z. And you have that sense of movement through it, that it gives you order and structure for your lament and your sadness when you're reading this text. The acrostic is helpful because it reminds us that there is a God who is, who is giving order in the midst of this chaos. The second piece that I wanna notice for us about hope too in Lamentations chapter three is the part of the text that talks about how his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The more that I read the Hebrew scriptures, the more convinced I am of how important time is in the Hebrew scriptures. Time is so significant for the people who wrote these texts and also for the people who believed in and had faith in God. Especially this part here where it says, they are new every morning. God has created an order in our lives of time, of a daily rhythm, so that when we find ourselves in those places of lament, we have this outlet. It's every day. So if you lament this day, there's always a new day coming, that perhaps that will be the day in which God manifests his faithfulness in your life and you'll be able to see the hope that you long for. Mercies are new every day. Time is part of the order that Lamentations reminds us of, and it's so helpful. Third, the last thing I want to notice about the text for us this morning is that it says that I will hope in God, not in ourselves. Lamentations is so helpful because it reminds us of that. When we're in these places of deep loss and pain and and devastation, we can't ultimately pick ourselves up. There's no, there's no bootstraps to pick ourselves up with. We don't have any boots on. We're in lament. There is nothing to pick ourselves up with. Only God can pick us up. Only God can give us the hope that we need to see a new day, to see a new path forward for us when we're in these deep places of suffering. Just after that event that I shared with you about that church that I was at before, that really terrible evening on that Wednesday night, um, a few weeks after that, the wisdom of my colleague that was there, she was the pastor at that church, she had decided to sign everybody up for this thing called triennium. Have any of you heard of triennium? Maybe just a few. Triennium is a PCUSA USA conference that happens once every three years for high school students at Purdue University. Uh, about 10,000 people go to the Presbyterian Youth Triennium every three years. It's an amazing conference. Um, and the pastor had signed everybody up before, uh, before I got there to go on it, and I got to go on the trip with them too. I was pretty convinced after that night that the youth ministry was just done. It was over, it was dead. It was never going to come back to life. Nothing was ever going to happen again. But because this pastor got everybody to sign up for this event to go to Triennium, they were forced to go to it. They had already paid all their money, and they had signed up. So all these kids came back, and they went to Triennium. Now, the really unique thing about going to Triennium, too, is you don't just go as a church. You go with your whole Presbytery. So it would be like if we went to Triennium, we would go with students from Burlingame or from Berkeley or from Hayward, and we would go together as one big group of 70 or 80 people, and that's what happened. We went with one big group with people from all over Seattle, and we had a fantastic week. It was incredible Um, going to Triennium. It was so life-giving and refreshing, and one of the things that was life-giving to us was that there was a group of students that were nearby where we were, and they didn't have a formal youth ministry at their church, and after they got back, they had made such good friends with the people that were part of our youth ministry that they decided to come start a new youth ministry, a new youth group with these new kids. And they wanted to come be a part of it with us too. And so we started something brand new. It literally was like death and resurrection. This thing had died and a new thing replaced it with these new students and these new people. And ultimately, not all of those wounds were transformed and healed from previously but this new thing was coming to life. And throughout that year, God did amazing things to change people and to grow in them. And they, were, they got to know God's faithfulness in the midst of that year, and they were transformed. It was the most hopeful thing. I, I could never have imagined that happening, and yet it did happen. God did something profound and amazing with that youth ministry. It was beautiful. When we find our places in lament, I think it actually grows us closer to God. It grows us closer to God because we can trust in that order, the acrostic, trust in the structure, trust in the time that there's going to be another day that we can wake up and that God is the one who is faithful. God is in, we put our hope in God. Alan was right when he said it's going to be all right. He said it's going to be all right. I used to think that when it comes to becoming a Christian, we should come to Christianity out of a place of having received some intellectual transformation, that Christianity is the right thing to believe. But I think when I read Lamentations that perhaps one of the best routes to Jesus would be desperation. I have nothing left. I have nothing left except to come to you with my hands held high like this, God. Help me, help me, help me, give me your mercies that are new every day. Desperation. In a moment we're gonna sing, great is thy faithfulness. This is a classic hymn and I dub it the Presbyterian hymn because everywhere I go in Presbyterian churches they love this hymn, I think we sing it once a month. (laughs) We love this hymn and it is a great hymn. And what I want us to know about is that it comes straight from Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, we, it sounds triumphant, it sounds beautiful, it sounds hopeful, and it is. But also, it comes out of this deep place of lament. And this knowledge, both of those two things. That God is faithful and that there are new mercies that are available each and every day. So perhaps when you find yourself in lament, sing the song. Grab the lyrics, sing the song, read these scriptures. And God's hope will show up in your life in a way that perhaps you couldn't have imagined it on your own as well before that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's pray. God, our hands are held high to you. That when we come to you out of loss and despair, you hear us, you know what's going on. And, and God, we pray that when we come to you in desperation, when we come to you in lament, not only would you hear us and know us, but, God, that you would ultimately begin to work something new in us, that there would be a resurrection hope that would come out of the midst of our lament, that would come out of our sadness and and our weeping. So, Lord, be present with us throughout the rest of this worship service, and, God, help us And fill us with the song of great is thy faithfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.